Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, recorded November 22nd, 2021, titled Copycat Virgin and Fake Census, featuring Bart Ehrman, Lee Strobel, Case for Christmas Response. It reminds me of what Proverbs 18:17 says. The one who states his case first seems right, until the other comes and examines him. If my channel had a theme verse... That would be it. Now, in the same way, fake news often comes across as convincing. As can Christian apologetics. Until we go to a reliable fact-checking website. Or apologia video. Where the initial claim is subjected to rigorous investigation and cross-examination. And often, that's when we recognize that the original news was, well, it was exaggerated or even outright fabricated. Amen. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. And welcome to part two of our investigation into Lee Strobel's four-part Case for Christmas. If you want to check it out from the beginning, tap on the playlist above my head and you'll be set. But before we move on, I first want to circle back to something Lee said in part one. So, what really happened on that first Christmas? Well, Joseph and the pregnant Mary arrived in Bethlehem to register for the census. So many in my comment section rightly pointed out that while he was skeptical of the innkeeper, he's giving a complete pass to the census, accepting it at face value despite incredibly problematic logistics and date conflicts. Perhaps renowned historian Dr. Bart Ehrman can help us out on this. <laughs> right. It's a, a fairly famous problem in Luke's gospel. The, the idea in Luke is that Joseph and Mary come from Nazareth uh, up in the northern part in Galilee. But there's a census under Caesar Augustus that the whole world has to register. And people have to register in their ancestral home. And so Joseph makes the trip with Mary down to Bethlehem because he's from the line of King David. David had been born in Bethlehem, and so Joseph has to register there. And while he's there registering for the census, Mary goes into labor and she gives birth so that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, even though he's raised in Nazareth. This census has long disturbed scholars because we have pretty good documentation of Caesar Augustus's reign. There was no worldwide census under Caesar Augustus. And the idea that somebody has to register I mean, he's registering in Bethlehem because he's from the line of David. So David lived a thousand years earlier. How are people in the Roman Empire going back to their ancestral home from a thousand years before? And why why David's home? Why not David's grandfather's home? So the idea that the entire population of the Roman Empire is going to where, you know, they're from hundreds and hundreds of years ago, their ancestors came from, it just doesn't make any sense. And so if, if you know, if the Democrats, you know, increase our taxes and make us go back, go back to our ancestral homes to register, you know, and you've got to go back to like where, you're, where your parents were from a thousand years ago, where are you going to go? <laughs> so, yeah, so scholars don't think this happened. And while Luke tells us that this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, 
Matthew also nails down the timing to tell us that Jesus was born during the time of King Herod. Now, the problem is that we know from other historical sources that Quirinius was not the governor when Herod was the king. This is King Herod, who's king of the entire area of what later was Galilee and Samaria and, and Judea. And Quirinius didn't be governor of Syria until 10 years after Herod died. And so Luke says that it was during Quirinius's governorship, but he's, you know, Luke is living decades later and he just got the facts wrong. And it's not that strange. I mean, how many people know who the vice president was 80 years ago? <laughs> so it's one of those things. But the fabrication itself suggests something. If they were simply going to make up the whole thing and there'd never been any such person, then why not just have him born in Bethlehem right there and leave out the Nazarene business? So the very falsity of it, the very fanatical attempt to make it come right, suggests that yes, there may have been a charismatic, deluded individual wandering around at that time. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I've never thought of Christopher Hitchens as a biblical scholar, but it's actually a pretty good point. I think the fact that they have to get him born in Bethlehem, it shows that Jesus really was from Nazareth. Both Matthew and Luke get him born in Bethlehem, but they get him born there in different ways. And in my seminar, so I'm, I'm doing this webinar on December 5th on did the Christmas story really happen? So I'll be doing four lectures dealing with just this kind of material. So an all day thing just on these kinds of questions. And one of the questions is, was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Stay tuned to the end of the video to hear more on this seminar. Or if you're ready to check it out now, get a discount deal and support this channel financially, you can jump to tinyurl.com slash Bartmas. That's B-A-R-T-M-A-S. Also linked in the description. And Hitchens has a good point, because if you wanted to make up a Jesus and you wanted just to invent somebody, why go to the bother of you know having him from Nazareth but being born in Bethlehem? I mean, just make him from Bethlehem. <laughs> why not? He could have grown up in Bethlehem. That'd be even better because he's the descendant of David. And so, you know, it's clearly that part's not made up <laughs> because somebody's trying to explain how he got born in Bethlehem if he was really from Nazareth. So, there, yeah, uh, it is a piece of evidence. Okay. With that on record, let's return to part two of Lee Strobel's Case for Christmas. As a journalist trained in law. Oh, were you a journalist? And believe it or not, even Christmas has been victimized by fake news. I believe it. For instance, if you peruse the internet or read books by certain skeptics, you're bound to see the charge that Christmas, with its virgin birth of Jesus, is actually based on similar legends and mystery religions that came before Christ. In other words, Christianity is merely a copycat religion that plagiarized this idea of the Incarnation from earlier mythology. Ah, uh, yes. Just as Easter series must cover the swoon theory, so Christmas apologetics must cover the copycat religion claims. As I would agree with the Christian that these are uncompelling objections that overreach beyond available evidence... I might just end up agreeing with Lee here. Was the idea of a virgin birth merely appropriated from earlier legends or tall tales? Or does it stand on a solid foundation of historical truth? Well, that's a false dichotomy, isn't it? There are options beyond directly copied and completely true. It could be a mostly true story with a few exaggerated elements. It could be a completely fabricated story yet still without any direct borrowing from prior myths. Or it could be a legend that was indirectly influenced by common motifs, themes, and tropes of deistic origin stories 
without directly copying any of them. Let's take a deeper look at all of this. In this session, we're going to dig beneath the fake news and get to the real story about the birth of Jesus. <laughs> this is going to be fun. This is going to be like my old newspaper days. Oh, did you used to work at a newspaper? But I never said you have a job. Meat. I'll send you a nice box of Christmas meat. Best I can do. Get out of here. Critics say there were stories of an earlier mythological god named Mithras long before Jesus was born. Did you know that Mithras was born of a virgin in a cave on December the 25th and had 12 disciples? He sacrificed himself for world peace. He was buried in a tomb and he rose again three days later. Now, does that sound familiar? I mean, could this mystery religion called Mithraism be the real source for Christian beliefs about Christmas and Easter? So let's do our own fact-checking. Let's look into the claims about this mythological Mithras. What do we find when we examine the record more thoroughly? Well, we discover that he wasn't born of a virgin. Such a claim was never made. Instead, the myth says that Mithras emerged fully grown out of a rock, and he was wearing a hat. No virgins and no caves. Besides, as we said in the last session, the idea that Jesus was born in a cave is nowhere in the New Testament anyway. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one, yeah. It's not held much now. It actually originates in a gospel from outside the New Testament. It's a very interesting gospel because it claims to be written by Jesus' brother, James. <laughs> His brother wrote this gospel, and it's, it's called the Proto-Gospel of James. If anyone's used to hearing scholars talk about this thing, it's called the Protevangelium Jacobi. <laughs> it just means the proto-gospel of James. It's a proto-gospel because it's actually the gospel before the gospel. And so it's really more about the birth of Mary. The question driving this account is, why would Mary be chosen? Why would she bear the Son of God? And this accounts for why she was so, so holy because of her incredible birth and her really uh, quite miraculous upbringing to make her a holy vessel for the Son of God. But in this account, Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem. This is the first time, by the way, you get the account of her riding on a donkey. That's not in the New Testament. And the first account in which Joseph is declared an old man. You know how in that all, all that artwork in the Middle Ages, like he's always an old man? What's that all about? Well, it comes from this proto-gospel of James. They're going, and she goes into labor, and he tries to find some place. They don't get to Bethlehem yet. Outside of Bethlehem, he finds a cave, and he leaves her in a cave to go off and find a midwife. And before he gets back, she's uh, delivered. And so you do find this in some of the older Jesus movies, as it turns out. You know, you get a lot of Jesus movies, and you know, he's born in a stable someplace. But in the silent Ben-Hur, <laughs> back in 1925, he's born in a cave, based on, the, on this story. Was there a claim that Mithras was born on December the 25th? Sure, but so what? The Gospels don't tell us when Jesus was born. I don't know any Christians who think that December 25th is the actual date. They might be out there, but any counter-arguments based on that date are unlikely to have impact. It wasn't until the 4th century that December the 25th was chosen as the date to celebrate Jesus' birth, in part to bring a Christian influence to the pagan celebrations of the winter solstice. So instead of happy holidays, a great secular greeting in December is happy solstice. We all have the solstice in common. So right down the line, the supposed parallels disappear. Mithras didn't have 12 disciples. In the Iranian version, he had one follower. In the Roman version, he had two. 
Mithras didn't sacrifice himself for world peace. He was known for killing a bull. And there are no records of any beliefs about the death of Mithras, and therefore no beliefs at all about a supposed resurrection. Well, you know, the Mithras thing is very strange. I think the reason people can point to Mithras as a forerunner of Jesus is because we know nothing about Mithras. (laughs) So you can make up anything you want. You know, Mithraism was a very important religion in the Roman world, and we don't have any literary texts that tell us about it. What we have are, uh, we have some sanctuaries that were discovered, and people have to infer from all this what's going on. But people tell me all the time, you know, oh, Mithras is born on December 25th, and the wise men came and visited him. And they like, they come up with this stuff. I said, where are you getting this from? Well, they read it from somebody. Well, where did he get it? He made it up. <laughs> so, right. So there were a number of people in the ancient world, in Greek and Roman mythology and in other mythologies, who were thought to be divine human beings. They were divine and human at the same time, and that could happen in a variety of ways. Sometimes a human being was so amazing that the gods even appreciated the person and took him up to heaven. And so then he became a divine being, you know, like Romulus, for example, the founder of Rome, who's like that. There are other people who were born to the union of a divine being and a human being. That's where Hercules comes from. Hercules' father is Jupiter, and his mother is Alcmena. And so a god gets a woman pregnant, and the offspring then is divine. And of course, you get something similar to that in, in Matthew and Luke. Jesus is born of a virgin, and the spirit of God is the one who gets Mary pregnant. Joseph doesn't, but the spirit of God does. And so in Luke's gospel, it's very interesting because the angel Gabriel comes to Mary before she's pregnant and says, you're going to conceive a son. And she gets very confused. Uh, (laughs) I've never had sex, and I'm not about to. He says, no, no, the Spirit will come upon you. And then he he said that you'll conceive because the Spirit of the Most High will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the one born of you will be called holy, the Son of God. And so the reason Jesus is the Son of God is because you have something like a divine being impregnating a woman for Luke. And so what ends up happening is you get a number of these stories of these divine men, and during their lives, they do great things. They do miracles. You know, there's another, there's a pagan guy in the first century, Apollonius of Tiana. He's a philosopher, but he was miraculously born. He was a Wunderkind as a kid. He was a religious Wunderkind. He left his home to go on an itinerant preaching ministry. He gathered disciples. He did miracles. He cast out demons. He did nature miracles. And at the end, he ascended to heaven. <laughs> so like, huh, sounds like the gospel of Luke. Yeah, it sounds like the gospel of Luke because these the Christian writers are familiar with these stories. And they're trying to tell... The there are people, look, Jesus is really the Son of God. But, you know, to say that he's the Son of God means you have to portray him in a way that sons of God are portrayed. And so that's the root of a lot of this, not some kind of Mithras thing that, you know, some mythicists have dreamt up. These are actual figures that we know about from texts. You may know of Strobel's apologist friend, J. Warner Wallace. He's basically the same person as Lee Strobel. But one was a skeptical reporter who set out to disprove his wife's Christianity. And the other was a skeptical detective who set out to disprove his wife's Christianity. In Wallace's latest book, Person of Interest, he wanted to tackle this same copycat savior claim, so reviewed an unspecified number of mythology textbooks, drawing out what he identified as 15 characteristics commonly shared by ancient deities. These meta-properties included predicted by prophecy, born by unnatural means, protected as an infant, and was associated with shepherds. Unsurprisingly, all the commonalities that jumped out to Wallace 
were those that would apply to the Jesus of the Gospels as well. Wallace's interpretation is that God had been influencing all of humanity's prior mythology, inserting Jesus foreshadowing, so that when he finally arrived, everyone would recognize Jesus as meeting their divine expectations. What Wallace fails to consider is that the more straightforward conclusion is that there are certain story elements that happen to resonate naturally with humans, and that the Jesus story was merely the next narrative to utilize these tropes. In my opinion, it is an overreach to say that the Jesus legend borrowed from this myth or that myth directly, but it should be obvious to all that the kinds of commonalities we see puts the nativity narrative into the category of typical myth. A natural birth, by Wallace's admission, is a motif, a trope, that the archetype has been adapted for an Abrahamic audience, an asexual conception, for example, doesn't negate the fact that it still fits the archetype, either by specific intent or as a beneficiary of literary natural selection. Contemporary writers invariably use only secondary sources to verify such claims. The scholars whose judgments they accept rarely produced or quoted the primary sources. This is why I always advocate for checking the primary source of any quote or claim, whether it agrees with you or not. Far too often, the context or original meaning doesn't match how it's used. Christians and non-Christians alike are guilty on this one. Is characterized by brief word, phrase, and sentence quotations that have been lifted out of context or incorrectly translated and used to support preconceived theories. Sweeping generalizations based on questionable evidence have become dogmatic conclusions that cannot be substantiated on the basis of careful investigation. By offering up an exaggerated plagiarism claim that is easily swept aside by Wallace, Strobel, and their ilk, skeptics allow them cover to get away with avoiding the more damning criticism that the Jesus birth legend isn't fundamentally anything unexpected or special. Whatever claim you make, first make sure that the data backs it up or else you risk undermining your entire premise. We can't identify any way that this idea of a virgin birth could have been imported into Christianity. So where would it have come from? Unless that's what actually occurred. Another false dichotomy from Lee. Where else could it have come from? An idea doesn't have to be either imported or true. Story details can be invented, for example. Story details can be mistaken. George Lucas unapologetically, liberally borrowed directly from many sources as he created Star Wars. But he came up with lightsabers on his own. None of these swashbuckling movies he loved featured actual laser swords. That's actually a light sword. I couldn't afford the officially licensed saber version. So lightsabers were not directly imported. That doesn't mean that there are real-world sabers of light. And it doesn't mean that this, at the time original notion, didn't arise from prior inspirations. He liked sword fighting, but it didn't seem futuristic. The twist was unique, but sword fighting is still a fantasy trope. Oh my god, no way. Did you used to do something with Star Wars? You're funny. Friends, the bottom line is this. The reports of Jesus' birth, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection appear in a historical context. I mean, all the fake news Lee's been complaining about in this episode took place in a historical context. 
Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter took place in a historical context. Doesn't make them true. They're based on eyewitness accounts. Wait, who exactly are the eyewitnesses of Jesus' conception? And are recorded virtually immediately after his life. I mean... Matthew and Luke were written around 70 years after Jesus' birth. But we'll get to that in a future episode. They bear the earmarks of authenticity. They aren't the kind of flights of fancy that are found in mythological tales. Wow. You and I do not agree at all on how many angel choruses it takes to put a story into the category of flight of fancy. You know, mythologies begin with phrases like, once upon a time. Or in the beginning. But that's not what the New Testament is like. On the contrary, the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. Which is ironic, because 2 Peter was almost certainly forged. That quotation about not following cleverly devised tales was written by someone pretending to be someone he wasn't. Now, that's the kind of truth that we can confidently anchor our lives in. Well, I'd suggest something a little more concrete like maybe that upcoming webinar by Dr. Ehrman. Yeah, thanks. Webinar, December 5th. What happened to Christmas, if anything? <laughs> Please be there. This is really an all-day event with four sessions. Did Matthew misinterpret scripture to prove the details of Jesus' birth? Can secular history disprove or validate Luke's account? Where did the later legends of Jesus' birth come from, and why were and are they so influential? What can we actually know about the birth of Jesus? A historian's answer. But even if you're busy that day, or don't want to sit through it all at once, the discounted early bird price includes access to the event replay, so you can listen to the sessions at your own pace, at your own time, as often as you want. Of course, this applies to anyone interested after the event takes place as well. If you're looking for a great Christmas gift for a Christian or skeptic, who would appreciate the in-depth scholarly expert take on this, rather than the layperson ramblings of Apologia or Lee Strobel, then this seminar would be perfect. And you don't have to go to a store or wrap anything. To enroll or check out the details, go to tinyurl.bartmus or check out the link in the description. And if you do, you'll be financially helping this channel, which I obviously greatly appreciate. If part three of Lee Strobel's Case for Christmas is already posted when you watch this, you'll see the thumbnail on the screen now. Tap it and I'll see you over there. Merry Solstice. Later. <laughs>